What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Show. I'm your host, Daniel J. Um, buddies couldn't make it. Blue might jump in, unsure. But today, what we wanted to talk about, or what I wanted to talk with you guys about, is an article that came out not too long ago that will shine a little bit more light on some a little few more details in this Idaho massacre that occurred in the wee, wee hours of November 13th. So without further ado, let's get into the content. This was an article. This is the uh, the picture used for the article. Uh, obviously, I use that on the thumbnail. This is from Airmail News. And the article is from Howard Blum. Now, this is a very long, long article. There's a lot of uh, unnecessary stuff in here. You know, if we look into who Howard Blum is, he is a uh, he's an author and a journalist. And so this story here is very much written like a like a short story or a novel uh, with a significant amount of pages. So what I was able to do, though, is kind of condense it down and um, we'll go over it. I just kind of put what was important, cut out the fat, so to speak. And let's get into it. I think it brings up quite a few questions. Also, guys, if you guys wouldn't mind hitting that subscribe button, ringing that notification bell, I want to thank all of you guys who have recently subbed to us. We appreciate it. We'll be going live tomorrow night. Olivia from Chronicles of Olivia, of Olivia will be joining the show. Um, also today or on Tuesday, whenever you guys watch this, uh, I'm scheduled to come on live with uh, the Pascal show. And so also one last thing, Friday, Truth and Transparency will be joining the show next Friday. Me and the Drunk Turkeys will be heading out over there and joining their show. So Stay tuned. A lot of a lot of uh, content is going to be brought up. A lot of guests are going to be coming in. We're going to be discussing this case further and hopefully, you know, putting our ideas together. With that being said, let's get into it. So this is uh, bits and pieces of that article from Howard Bloom uh, and referencing the Idaho war situation. Um, we'll read through this significantly condensed compared to what's out there. Um, and in my opinion, like I said before, it, it asks a lot of questions. So this says Sunday morning, four young corpses, all students and friends were found hacked in their beds in a pale clapboard house, little more than a stone's throw away from the uh, Hardy University of campus. There was so much blood and it seeped through the wooden floors and run down the building's gray concrete foundation in a jagged in jagged rivet, red rivlets. Now. Um, basically, and this is kind of confirming uh, that that substance that was coming out of the back of what was Anna's bedroom was indeed um, blood. And so uh, this goes into talking about the 911 calls. All 911 calls routinely routed to Pullman, about 10 miles west of Washington State, in Washington State, and home to Washington State University, where they're handled by civilian employees on municipal agency on a municipal agency called Whitcom 911. The calls come in from local Whitman and Astonan counties, as well as the city of Moscow, uh, two universities with a total amount of 42,000 students and additionally 70 municipal uh, and 70 additional municipal and county agencies. Uh, and the dispatch crews, local newsport reports severely understaffed. The overtime schedules often add up to grueling 20 hours a week. 
In fact, Dispatcher's Guild has complained that our ability to uphold public safety is at risk. So what that tells me is that, you know, Brian was a, uh, a student in criminology. He was, uh, by all accounts, going through um, the process of being an intern at the police department there in Pullman, uh, given his Ph.D., um, student status as a TSA uh, or TA, TA, I'm sorry, <laughs> as a teacher assistant, um, he would have had privilege to, uh, you know, more things, maybe even the uh, police department and office there, their you know, officers and, and understand how understaffed that they are. Um, this could have also been a reason why he chose this area to be the area of target. Just speculation, as much of what I say is, only the uh, names and places have stayed the same. Let's see. Let's, let's move forward. And all things only get worse on football weekends. Therefore, when callers get agitated rather than risk injurious delays by probing for details, the responders swiftly assign generic explanation. Unconscious person. is one of the standard catchphrases. It can mean precisely what it says, or it can be a shorthand for something more ominous. And so I guess what he's trying to say is that dispatch put out there that it was an unconscious person because um, just to get it swiftly out because they had other calls. You know, that doesn't make any sense because he talks about in this article that that morning was, you know, he talks about the uh, officer uh, Gunnerson and that morning was quiet and um, that he had other guys on patrol that he could have sent, but he decided to go with them to break up the, the quietness and how slow it was. And so, you know, to go into there and say this, that it's an unconscious person because of how busy they are and they're answering calls left and right. This happened on noon on a Sunday morning. This wasn't at night during the football game or afterwards proceeding where alcohol is probably prevalent a lot throughout the night. This is the next day. And so I'll continue. It was 11.58 a.m. on Sunday, November 13th, when the notification of unconscious person at the residence of 1122 King Road, Moscow, uh, was passed on to Sergeant Shane Gunderson, Gunderson, who on that day was midway through a 12-hour shift that had started at 6 a.m. Uh, that helps me understand some stuff. They have 12-hour shifts out there. And so if that started at 6 a.m., I would assume it ends at 6 p.m., meaning that's when the, uh, the following shift comes in. And so if Brian Kohlberger, when he's seen at 326 a.m. on the 700 block of Indian Hills um, Drive, which is elevated above, beyond, you know, I'll, I'll pull it up real quick. So this is where he is seen. He is seen driving through here, and two minutes later, he's up here on Steiner. But, you know, you can see the police department here. I'd assume maybe if, you know, perhaps it was shift change around that time that maybe that's what he was trying to see, because there's not much you can see here outside of that. There's probably going to be a lot of patrol cars not there. They'll be out working. And so, um, you know, I wondered what their shift was. Apparently it's a 12 hour shift and it starts at 6 a.m. <clears throat> we'll continue. Um, okay, that part doesn't really pertain to anything. It was a quick trip. The roads leading into the university neighborhood that Sunday were as empty as the classrooms. 
As soon as Gunderson's black and white cruiser pulled up behind a neat row of cars parked in the driveway, and oh man, that's gonna be a tough word. Steer can cantilevered house on King Road, he immediately knew something was very wrong. It was a noise, there wasn't any just eerie and natural silence, a cluster of young people, university students presumably, were milling outside, open front door of eleven twenty-two, like goals on a beach. So there was a group of young people that were there kind of validates a little bit of what Kim was saying on the call that we had, where she said that the, there was a lot of people that were on scene and that news spread fairly quickly because of the people that were on scene. And that's how it kind of got back to um, her daughter, so to speak. And so there were already kids there and they were all quiet and puts here and yet they were ex exceptionally quiet. They weren't merely subdued. They seemed stunned as if drained by a deep and intense shock. When the three mystified officers approached the front door, someone in the crowd, it would be later shared, muttered a single plaintive word, dead. Now, what this doesn't say is that somebody was passed out or any of those things from whatever the case. Uh, we've had a, we had a lot of people in the comment section say that Dylan passed out running outside and somebody picked up the phone and called somebody else. And this puts that definitely to bed, that that's not what happened. We'll continue. Still, Gunderson would confess to others he was unprepared for the strong smell of blood that rose in his nostrils at the moment that he walked inside. So we talked about this and um, referencing, you know, Dylan and Bethany being in the house and not sure what was going on throughout this time. But this here says that, you know, there was a strong smell of blood as soon as you walked into the door. I, you know, to think somebody was passed out with the smell of blood and the way they described the scene just doesn't make any sense. The coroner, who had once been an emergency room nurse in the earlier stage of her life, would describe the scene in press interviews as chaos, lots of blood. Few others would even attempt to put into words what they saw. And so Gunnarsson and his two officers largely mute almost robotic in their movements, now stepped carefully across the blood-streaked wooden floor and proceeded to inspect the crime scene. Wedged against the hill, the house rose up on three distinct levels from a platform base like an ancient uh, per, per, Parisian zergot. The officers set out to inspect each floor. They moved cautiously, knowing what they would find, not knowing what they'd find, yet, of course, by now they knew. First, the first floor, nevertheless, was a surprise. There were two bedrooms, and when they anxiously entered each one, there were no sign of anything out of the ordinary. Later, they would learn that two university student occupants, Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk, Funky, had apparently slept, obviously, through the carnage. It was an explanation that made no sense unless one's life had been informed by the experience of being college students who curled up in a bed after a long, a long night of drinking. And it says here, however, as the staggering day wore on, Mortensen would reveal more about what happened that night. And so that, that tells me that she said that she slept through it. And then after being talked to throughout the entire day, she started to open up about more things about what had happened that night. A defense is going to say that she lied. Right. And that if she lied the first time. What else is she lying about when it comes to this case? 
I mean, that's what it is. I'm not trying to victim shame or, or anything. It says here, according to this article, that she stated that she slept through it based on being curled up in bed after a long night of drinking. And so we'll start it. We'll, we'll continue. Mortensen would reveal more about what happened that night. She told the authorities she had heard crying, opened her bedroom door and saw a man in black clothes, a mask walking past her. Frozen and in shock, she stood immobile as he headed towards a sliding glass door at the back of the house. And then inexplicably, she returned to her room and locked the door till the morning. Now, this saying here that she returned to her room and locked her door until the morning. That means that she wasn't into in her room, for one, and that that this guy passed right by her. You know, it's not a situation where maybe she had the door cracked. It just leads more questions now that this guy saw Dylan and just walked by. But in the daylight, things turned frantic. Morrison and Funky first stirred from their bed sometime after 11 a.m. They found it impossible to rouse their roommates and called friends for assistance. You know, the way they described the scene, and yet these folks here are talking about they tried to wake them up and they couldn't wake up, so they called their friends. This does not make any sense. It's not making any sense at all, whatsoever. And then in the torrents of confusion after the friends have arrived, one of their cell phones was used to make an agitated 911 call that resulted in the unconscious person message, which was relayed to Gunderson. The trio of officers, meanwhile, proceeded with haste to the second floor. They opened up the bedroom door to find two dead bodies, a male and a female. The pair were gruesomely drenched in blood, yet both their good-looking faces had oddly been preserved like masks. Even at that probing moment, it was difficult. One of the young officers would later nearly wail to look at the 20-year-old pair. So two bodies were gruesomely drenched in blood. You know, the police report said that the unconscious person was one of the second floor victims. This doesn't make sense. Her story doesn't make sense. I think Kim's story makes more sense than this one. Two bodies. Now, the other thing is both there. Uh, this is an author. You got to remember. So he's going to be describing things awkwardly. Both their good looking faces had oddly been preserved like masks. So there wasn't a cut, a scratch, anything on the face. Why would why wouldn't they, you know, mess up their face? Just thinking out loud. You think they needed it to open up their phones? It's weird, man. It's just really weird. I will right, we'll continue. It says here, Zanna Kernodal, a grave, sad-eyed beauty who was I bet and her happy-go-lucky tousled hair Sigma Chi boyfriend, Ethan Chapman, a triplet from Conway, Washington, whose surviving brother and sister also attend the university and not considered the glow 
of the once rich promise that had been so viciously extinguished. Of, I don't know. On the third floor, things got, if possible, worse. In one bedroom lied a single bed where two inherent women, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Goncalves, they might have been sisters so similar that they were 21-year-olds, pretty Barbie doll-like sculpted features, long cascades of thick, straight blonde hair falling down to their narrow shoulders. Yet in death, there was one gruesome difference. Kaylee, it would be reported, that had been hacked with particular ferocity. It was as if her wild assailant, or was it assailants, had been intent on gouging out chunks of her flesh. Large punctures was how would lacerations have been described. Maddie's wounds, while no less fatal, appeared less, less feral, more measured, at least in comparison. The description of both these scenes don't tell me that somebody would assume they were unconscious. The smell, the the scene, the blood everywhere, the the damage, the injuries that occurred. This is uh this I ain't gonna lie, this is difficult to even read and comprehend. We'll continue though. Across the narrow hallway was one final door. The officers pulled it open, and at last they discovered sign of life, a fluffy caramel-colored dog. It was Murphy, Kaylee's frisky labradoodle. He was unharmed, unmarried, even by even a speck of blood, a small consolation and barely one for that, for all they had seen were only beginning to process. Gunderson quickly called his boss, Captain Roger Lehner, the head of the 24-Officer uh, Operations Division, Lehner was a veteran cop. He had spent more than 20 years on the force in nearby Lewiston before having been lured six years earlier to Moscow with a captain's ring. Gunderson report left him unnerved. It took me a second. He recalled a sharp edge even weeks later to the memory. I really had to think about what I had just heard. Four murders in Moscow, Idaho was so out of character. But quickly, Lehner's professionalism took control. He had thousands of questions, and yet... He knew the only hope of finding answers would be to follow the previously established protocols. Dufully, uh, he gave the uh, <clears throat> the orders to set up the perimeters of the crime scene to bring in forensic team and to summon the coroner. It was standard in a major case, and if, if four homicides wasn't a major case, what was to alert the Idaho State Police, and he did that too. His next call was harder. The university had been informed it was not just for students. They had been brutally murdered in an off-campus home, but that there was no way of knowing whether the killer or killers planned to strike again. The students needed to be warned. At 2.07, a little over two hours after the three cops entered the blood-soaked house, the University Office of Public Safety and Security sent a vandal alert email to the students and faculty in Moscow PB investigating a homicide on King Road near campus. Suspect is not known at this time, stay away from the area and shelter in place. Shelter in place order requires people to take refuge in a room with no or few windows. Laner had still not succeeded in completing one task and that was notifying, and that was at the top of his mental list. He had not been able to speak with his boss, James Fry, the chief of police. On November 12th, Fry and his wife, Julia, had driven to visit a friend nearly three hours away. By that time, Laner had finally reached him. Uh, it was hours after the discovery of the bodies. And by the time I entered the home on King Road, it was dark outside. According to several accounts, close to 6 p.m. 
For some obstructive reason, he thought it was important to go home first and change into his chief's uniform. I found that odd, and I added, I kept that in there because maybe perhaps he wasn't aware of the severity. I highly doubt it. But he went home first to change before um, getting out there. Uh, maybe he was wearing something inappropriate, perhaps shorts or, or something. He was on vacation. But just wanted to throw that out there. <clears throat> but what he saw that evening left him. He would confide to a friend physically and emotionally drained. Fry called the brew and asked for their assistance. It was quickly arranged. A team of agents, eventually about 40 in total, would be dispatched to Moscow. A smaller, smaller group flying in from Salt Lake City office would be arriving as soon as tomorrow. And as he'd specifically requested three members of the behavioral analysis unit, two men and a woman were also being dispatched. Fry, however, wasn't done yet. He had been working relentlessly through the night, but with the dawn of the new day, he realized there was something he had forgotten. When Rand Walker got the call, he was in his GMC pickup. Fry said, currently, I need you to stand by. Immediately, Walker knew something awful had happened. A PhD with a private practice in Moscow. He served as the department's psychologist. Some of my young officers are going to need your help, Fry continued. Then he corrected himself and said, actually, it's not just the young ones. And so this scene was so bad and so horrific that these officers who are trained and and have seen, you know, maybe not firsthand um, scenes like the one that they had seen here, but uh, definitely in the academy and in uh, training have seen uh, assaults and murders and dead bodies and things of that nature, that this was so gruesome that it required these um, men and women to seek the need and help of psychologists, yet DM and uh, Dylan and Bethany attempted to wake people up because they thought they were unconscious. And then have the presence to call their friends instead of the police. I'm not saying that, that Brian isn't is innocent or any of those things, but I think his defense is going to have a um, an easy time you know, destroying the credibility of the test of, of the witness testimony and, and of the story that these guys are giving. It's going to be difficult. Let me see. Officer Brett Payne led the morning briefings during the frustrating weeks long investigation. Payne had come to Moscow PD just two years earlier after serving in the 82nd Airborne Division in Afghanistan and a stint stateside when the MPs Chief Wright had taken and instant liking to his squared away military demeanor and promoted him quickly to corporal over other more experienced officers. And the state police asked who they would be leading the morning briefings Fry without thinking much about it chose pain. The chief knew the young corporal had been involved in several complex forensic investigations with the MPs. That sort of technical expertise the chief suspected would come in handy. Uh, the conference would begin with a recitation of what the investigators knew. It was not a long list consider fact four students were killed in their sleep sometime between 3 and 5 a.m in the weeks ahead they developed a more precise timeline the murders uh, the, the authorities deduced occurred between 4 and 425 a.m fact there was no sign of fourth century or of robbery fact a single weapon had been used a long bladed knife and a tan leather knife sheath uh, stamped with u.s marine corps insignia was found laying next to mogan's bed 
fact, there was no trail of blood outside the house. The like, ah, oh, man, the way they describe that scene, this is like hard to imagine that there's no evidence outside those bedrooms. Fact, the house was a repository for a large collection of forensic evidence, blood, saliva, hair, prints, DNA. But whether any of these belonged to the killer after the autopsies, the general consensus held that it was a single assailant still undetermined, was still undetermined. They were all in, wait, what? The house was a respiratory for large collection of forensic evidence, blood, saliva, hair, prints, DNA. Whether any of these belonged to the killer, after the autopsies, the general consensus held that it was a single assailant, still was undetermined. So they still don't know. The autopsy wasn't able to determine if it was a single person or not. Gotcha. These were all, these were all the investigators agreed important pieces in the puzzle, yet they were not enough. For more than three weeks, the, the early morning conferences ended in a grim litany of what remained unknown. They couldn't figure out how the killer had gotten away seemingly without leaving a clue. They had no idea how he had chosen these victims. Okay, so for three weeks, these guys are claiming that they didn't know who he was. Mm. I don't know about that. I think they had an idea why the one thing that tells me they had an idea of who he was early on was November 14th in the PCA on page 15. It states that Brian Kohlberger's phone had um, connected to a tower, a cell phone tower that gives service to Moscow. However, they don't believe he was there. Why wouldn't he, they believe he was there? unless they were watching him. And that's just the next day. So I I think there's I think there's more to it as to why they think it's him. Maybe that's why they won't want to open up, you know, unseal so many things. They want to keep things sealed. Maybe perhaps Dylan said more. Maybe she she said that she did recognize this guy and seen him. But they didn't put that out there because um, maybe perhaps they're trying to protect her in some way. Because if everybody found out that, you know, she knew more than this, then she wouldn't be in need of, of yeah, she'd be in need to go to jail, in my opinion, to be honest with you. But, you know, if if she had more knowledge or was even involved in this. But I'm not sure. We'll continue. Detectives were looking for context to the events and people involved in these murders. A Moscow PD press release announced to assist with the ongoing investigation, any odd or out of the ordinary events that look in place should be reported. And nearly begging and and nearly begging the release urged your information, whether you believe significant or not, might be a piece to the puzzle that helps investigators solve these murders. The tips poured in a new generation of consulting detectives armed with cell phone and laptops that assist the vast repository of information from selfies to Facebook pages and further stoked by the barrage of raw theories and hearsay decimated on Reddit and 4chan. Embrace the opportunity, the real-life mystery that had had the compelling allure of a particular thorny CSI episode and not 
least the police were pleading for help. By a recent count, more than 9,025 uh, 9, email tips were received, an additional 4,575 uh, 4, phone calls and 6,050 digital media submissions. An army of law enforcement analysis was assigned to the long daunting task to see if on the oysters there were, was a single pearl. It was a black bearing of time, of all time. Much of it led down rabbit holes and fatuous speculation. Some was not just wrongheaded, but cruel. Innocent ex-boyfriends, a hoodie-wearing bystander lurking at a food truck where Maddie and Kaylee ordered early Monday morning uh, bowls of carbonara to soak up the alcohol ingested during the late, the last carefree pub crawl of their lives. A bro neighbor who insisted on sharing rambling anecdotes with every reporter who knocked on his door, frat brothers who were rumored to be stoked up on steroids and driven by long get, uh, gestating grievances, all were callously and persistently slandered with malicious authority. It got so madcap that a history proof, a professor at the university decided she had to sue to put an end to the one internet sleuth's bizarre speculation that filled, that it filled romance with one of the women had driven the teacher to do this. Uh, I think we all are aware of that, that one. And then analysis hit a gold stream. The overnight assistant manager, her name at, at her request remains a secret for a gas station on Troy Road, not far from the house on King Road, and decided she might as well see what she can do. She'd not been working the night of the murders, but nevertheless, she spent downtime on the graveyard shift reviewing the videos recorded by the station's surveillance camera on November 13th. Had a weird feeling, she later said. For two nights, she intermittently kept at it, but found nothing. And then on the third night, she spotted a white car speeding down Highway 8 before turning Peel Mill down a side street. She took a screenshot of the car and emailed the tip line to the address. Two days later, the Moscow police arrived at the gas station to confiscate hours of surveillance footage. And after just a quick view, they began to feel the hunt was at last on. So oh, this is interesting. So they're saying in the corner of this article, it's stating that that picture of the white vehicle that was at that gas station helped, you know, get the uh, conversation going. Problem with that is, is it was traveling down Highway 8 and then turned off the side road. Now, we confirmed that this vehicle was going this direction and then turned this direction towards. Um, oh, let's bring this up. So this is where the victim's house is, right? This vehicle was coming down up Highway 8 and then turn off a side street towards, right directly towards the uh, their house, right? Problem with that is this is at 345 after it's already been seen in this neighborhood at 326, after it's been seen circling this neighborhood four different times. Now, is there enough time that at one point um, that it was coming through, that it left, came around, back around this way and then went back yeah sure there, there's that possibility i just don't understand why that vehicle here at this gas station isn't in the probable cause affidavit and i don't understand why um this is the only camera supposedly that saw him leaving this neighborhood and so how he got back over here without being seen by this camera again or only being seen by once at this camera. It's, it's just a lot of questions there. Is it possible? Yeah. I just, I don't understand why it's not in the probable cause affidavit. So 
encouraged, they reached out on a hunch to Kane Fratnick. Fratnick, recently retired and now invest, investing in real estate, was a freewheeling guy who shares his website uh, that he listens to classical vinyl on drinking single mulch scotch. He also owned a six-unit rental complex on Lind Lane, about three-tenths of a mile from where the body's been found. Surveillance camera fixed on the roof. I downloaded it, gave him access to everything from 2 a.m. through noon on Sunday the 13th, he said. Once those tapes were reviewed, the same telltale white car was spotted. And again, it appeared to be making a a breakneck getaway through the dark 3 a.m. streets. With this confirming sighting a different pace, a different mood took over in the investigation. The team felt that they could now march forward with purpose. The FBI laboratory enhanced and succeeded in, in deciphering the blurred image of a car. It was a white 2011 or 13 Hyundai Elantra. There were 22,000 Hyundais in the region that matched the search criteria. One of them, the police were starting to suspect, had been driven by the killer. Only finding the one <clears throat> one Elantra that would lead to an arrest loomed as a needle in a haystack sort of challenge. The search, even with a small army of bureaus, was nearly an impossible task. Then, as the holiday season approached, there was a hint of Christmas miracle. She fried for one upbeat, met late in the morning of December 20th with Rand Walker, the department psychologist, Rod Opes, and one of the police chaplains, in the courthouse library, law library, it was one of those few places they could huddle where the chief felt no one would be listening. I'm going to need you two to get ready, he said, with a deliberate coyness. I'm going to need you before too long. The men eagerly asked whether there had been a break in the case. Fry did not. Fry did his best to rein in a pregnant smile. All I'm saying is, he reiterated, as I need you both to stand by, I might be calling you very soon. <clears throat> But at 4.30 that afternoon, Moscow Police Communications team issued a flash update. Investigators were aware of a Hyundai Elantra located in Eugene, Oregon, and have spoken with the owner. Other vehicle is not believed to have any relation to the property in Moscow or ongoing murder investigation. So here's my problem with this statement here. So they're saying he's saying that he got excited because they thought they found the white vehicle on, on the 20th crashed uh, in Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. They were already aware that Kohlberger was traveling with his dad across state and across the country to Pennsylvania. Like apparently, he got pulled over twice in the, in the state of Indiana. I think it was like the 14th or the 15th of December. I don't know about the credibility of everything in this anymore. <laughs> Just leave it at that. This is something that was not even relative to the case. And at the time in which they found that vehicle, maybe perhaps he was just misinformed and and they thought something different. We'll, we'll go on through it. <clears throat> and just like that, the psychologist and the chaplain knew that the chief, despite the hopeful conversation earlier today, would not be calling them anytime soon. Meanwhile, as the hunt for the Elantra proceeded with tedious concentration, no less discouraging challenge of finding a clue in the forensic evidence, a vast muddle of prints, DNA, and blood that can be collected in the house was brought vividly home. Body cam footage was released of a call on King Road residence two months before the murders by a trio of Moscow cops in response to a noise complaint from an annoyed neighbor. The informed and dispassionate view of the FBI scientific experts, however, the body cam footage was seen solely in operational terms, and it was dis disinspiring, inspiriting, I'm sorry. 
It made clear that just about anyone and everyone had access to 1122 King Road. The door was always open and a stream of people were constantly coming and going. The, anal the analysis moaned that there would be so much forensic evidence, it might be easier to determine who in Moscow had never been inside that house rather than there have any realistic hope of finding a suspect. <clears throat> that is pretty damning uh, as well when it comes to possible DNA in that house. And I mean, we all saw the, uh, the police cam footage of it as well. For even as I am standing at that high plateau, a white Hyundai Elantra, a bit, the 2015 model, not the one of year cited in the police bulletins, is making its way east from the snows of Idaho. His journey started a parking lot outside a graduate student housing complex at Washington State University in nearby Pullman, just eight miles from my perch. I'm assuming that the author here is, was in, in Idaho at this point, uh, Moscow. At the wheel is Brian Christopher Kohlberger, and beside him, intriguingly, is his father. And all while the FBI had been covertly following along, too. The hunt and the hunters were heading to an early morning rendezvous at his house deep in the Pennsylvania woods. For the case has been solved, or so authorities believe, white speeding car in the Troy gas station video was one clue that had led them to Kohlberger. And despite the odds of from the chaos at the murder scene, the technician succeeding striking a telltale sample of DNA from the knife sheath. On December 27th, Pennsylvania law enforcement agents covertly rummaged through the trash at the Koberger family white colonial house in Albright. When items in the trash were analyzed in the lab, alarm bells started to ring. The matches of DNA on the sheath were nearly identical to Michael Koberger, the suspect's father. This was the final piece completed the puzzle and the arrest warrant was issued for Brian Koberger. So what about the suspect? Here's what we know so far. Pudgy child of an adolescent teenage taste for heroin, which he has allegedly conquered. A tendency to be rude and boorish in social situations, according to the complaints of those who crossed his path over the years. And not least, a fierce intelligence reveled, revealed in both college and grad school classroom. He has agreed to be extradited to Idaho and on January 30 appeared in Monroe County, Pennsylvania courtroom. First looked at least to my eye, daunted by the events, a sad figure in red jumpsuit, cartoonishly poked up by the bulletproof vest the authorities had insisted he wear underneath. Still, he also is still he is also a big man, long-armed and limbered, a presence. And in the courts of brief hearing, he appeared again to my admittedly distant view to grow more confident. A fierce, purposeful determination is I decide, I decided revealed. And I wonder, does Koberger, a man who seems to see himself as the smartest, um, he will stand trial in Moscow for four counts of first-degree murder, as well as burglary. But even before his journey west, Jason Labar's courtroom-appointed attorney in Pennsylvania is fighting back. Mr. Koberger is eager to be exonerated of these charges and looks forward to resolving these matters as promptly as possible. He insisted in, the, in a statement released to the press, Mr. Koberger has been accused a very serious crime, but the American justice system cloaks him in a veil of innocence. He should be presumed innocent until proven otherwise, not tried in the court of public opinion. Person in the room, have oh man, it cut over. My bad. When I copied and pasted this, uh, I did it wrong. Well, anyways, we'll continue. I am inviting you to participate, Koberger Road, in a research project that seeks to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. Particularly, the study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent arrest and emphasis on your thoughts and 
your feelings throughout your experience. Was this simply a grad student's academic require or would it be a killer asking the professional, suppose you want to commit the perfect crime, how would you do it? And now under arrest awaiting trial, he quietly possible, he has the quiet possibility discovered that there is no such thing as the perfect crime. And so that was a lot of it to read. Um, I, I shrunk it down tremendously, y'all. Um, but a couple of things, like I said, that kind of kind of popped out to me about this is that um, lack of evidence, the lack of evidence that they have. Um, you're looking at a story changing at the very least from Dylan Mortensen. Um, a story that changed is going to be pushed out there that it's story that somebody lied and that's how the defense are going to look at it and they're going to they're going to really ridicule her on the stand um a lot of questions y'all a lot of questions let me know in the comment section what you think about this article let me know um if it brought any new details or you know um if you found out something new that we didn't know already i think we did you know it talks about the scene and it talks about how the smell and the blood, it's, it's a sad event. You know, our prayers and thoughts go out to the families and the victims involved in here. Um, will you find justice soon? And I hope they, um, this guy, Brian, if he ends up being the guy, may he be uh, uh, at the full extent of the Idaho law and the judiciary system. That being said, guys, please hit that like and subscribe button. I'm getting out of here.